Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favourite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I'd consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Ken Rusk. Now, Ken is the author of Blue Collar Cash. Now, this is a book that I just recently read, and I came across it through John Skomsky. And John Skomsky's a podcaster. He has Think, Live, Repeat, and you can find Ken on there as well. Now, beyond that, John had suggested to me I might really enjoy this book. So I went and had a look and went, yeah, I'd And I did really, really enjoy this book. And I'm not the most avid reader in the world. However, I got so much from it and I've recommended a million times since. And we're so blessed to have Ken here to talk to us. I think for all my listeners out there, I know we've got tons of people who are architects and designers. You will be able to relate so much with this because your visions are only brought to life by blue collar workers. That's how it happens. That's the way this thing works. And so... Ken is at the coalface of that, and he's an amazing mentor and businessman. 
and he's from Toledo, Ohio. So, Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adrian. I appreciate you having me. It's, uh, it's great to talk to somebody way over there in Australia. I think that's really cool. It's kind of crazy, that, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> and for everything that the world does, it's a minute that's enabled us to do this, which I think is absolutely brilliant, you know, real time. You're in the afternoon, well, you know, I'm you, in the morning. There's good and bad about technology, and this is one of the good pieces right here, so yeah. that's for sure. A hundred percent. When I couldn't get my microphone working or my earpiece working before, that was the bad part. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to kick off. So Ken, I want to start with maybe give us a little bit of runway on why you went to the trouble of writing a book. And then we'll talk about your past and how you got to this point. But just why a book? What happened? You know, I, I never intended to be an author. I, I never said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write a book next year or next month or I, that never happened to me. What actually happened was my daughter had suffered from a pretty serious illness about 13 years ago. And when your daughter goes through something like that, you know, her mother and I had four or five years of you know office visits and waiting rooms and radiology offices. And you have a lot of time to sit around and think. It's just that simple. And so you begin to say to yourself, okay, so what's important? What should you be chasing in life? What, what, what should you be saying is the priority that I want for myself? What's my own personal nirvana going to look like? And so I said, you know, so I started writing a letter to her, actually, believe it or not. And then that letter turned into a bigger document. And then pretty soon I was interviewing buddies of mine who were all entrepreneurs in their own right. And it just kind of grew from there. And pretty soon I had 80,000 words and My wife said to me, you know, I think you got a book here and you should share what you've done because I've done a lot of coaching. I've hired 2000 people in my career. Wow. And I've had to do a lot of a lot of almost involuntary life coaching as as it would be. (laughs) So you kind of you take all that stuff and you kind of combine it up and it, it turned into a book. And then it just really snowballed from there. I never thought it would go 10 feet, much less the 10 miles that it's gone. And I'm very blessed and grateful but uh, yeah, from nothing to bestseller. I mean, who would have thunk it from a ditch digger? You know what I mean? So I was, yeah. I was pr- pretty, pretty fortunate, actually. Well, maybe it's just the information so on point. Yeah, well, it, they, I keep hearing about how, how timely the information was, you know, and how, how relevant it was for that. And, and you know how business goes. They say that almost anything, you can have the best idea, but if the timing isn't right, sometimes it, it just doesn't work. And uh, so this is one where, where we kind of hit the ground running with what was currently happening in the, in the business environment. So, yeah, it kind of worked out good that way. Yeah, I think actually that timing point's really important with the fact of, you know, we've all just been through COVID and we've actually had this, uh, oh, I know America's been the same, this massive, I want to say housing boom. It's not so much just a housing boom, it's a renovation boom as well. And then aging infrastructure in cities, and we've got a lot of gentrification of of down or not downtowns, but it's close suburbs. And of course, there's aging infrastructure in those, and they have to be upgraded. And all these things have put a massive pressure on our systems and our people. And then getting trades has been as as much as we struggled with getting and still do struggle with getting resources, but getting trades has been really like the the big one. It's been the thing that slowed the system down so much. 
Yeah, you know, there's. I, I talk a lot about this in the book. There, there seems to be like this perfect storm that was brewing. It started, I don't know, probably about ten or fifteen years ago. When I was in high school, they actually had shop classes where mm-hmm. kids could they could walk down the hallway and you'd see somebody changing a transmission on a Mustang in this room, and you'd look over here, somebody was you know, milling a table leg for a, for a, a table they were making, or someone was doing someone's hair or their nails or cooking or whatever, you know, yep. welding. Yep. And, you know, Adrian, that, that's where millions and millions of kids accidentally discovered how cool it was to take on one of those trades. I mean, they didn't know prior to that, and they played with it and tried it, and it worked, and they liked it, and they kept going. So somebody decided, well, let's take all those classes out, and we'll replace those rooms with computers, which is fine. We needed to learn all that. But why did it have to be one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. So you you eliminate all those kids from discovering it, and then – you know, with the advent of cell phones, right, instead of going in the backyard and building a tree fort with lumber and hammer and nails that you found and whatever, now you're building Minecraft on your cell phone. And it's just not the same experience as you know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not the same. Nothing against Minecraft, but nope. I mean, it's not the same experience as doing what you wanted, doing something for yourself. So then if you couple those two things with the fact that colleges are really good at almost shaming you into say, if you don't come to see us, you're never going to amount to anything, which has never been true, certainly uh-huh. not true now. And then, like you said, this pent-up demand for services, it's this perfect storm that's putting enormous pressure on the supply side of people coming into the trades. But the the beautiful thing, the silver lining in all this is, if you're willing to do that, you're taking advantage of the fact that where supply is low and demand is high, that's where the money's going. And boy, are we seeing that today. Wait, <laughs> I think that's that's actually another part of it. Like people were for so many years have gone, they're tradesmen, so you know they should earn this amount of money like this. And and trades tend to get very sort of like pigeonholed into you know i don't know what the, the costs are in america but like say in australia you know electricians a hundred dollars an hour you know tilers you know x amount per square meter brickies are x amount per square foot or mm-hmm. per square meter you know this kind of thing because there's all these cost metrics to create a building that people are looking for something and so often where they they might be like that a lawyer or doctors less so because they're kind of governed by insurances more but lawyers might be you know way up here or down here just depending certainly in the architecture industry people are very you know all over the show there isn't sort of one set road and so a lot of I think a lot of the time trades have been very pigeonholed into oh you you know you're charging what that's too expensive for that's and it's not about the value of the job they're doing it's just about the value of the hour they're selling. Yeah, and but see, the thing is, is, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what side of the equation you're on, the payer or the payee, <laughs> <laughs> that you you can't mess with supply and demand. I mean, it's it's a force to be reckoned with unless you artificially manipulate the numbers. Yeah. You know, if, if there's less and less and less people willing to do this, and it's because of the stig- stigmatization and all that other kind of this, what we just talked about, then you're just naturally going to occur 
you're going to have price pressures, price pressures, time pressures, scheduling pressures, and all that makes wages rise. Yeah. And, you know, I have to tell you, somebody asked me the other day, what is the quickest way, you know, that, you know, they, they had parents that were immigrants and they came to the United States and they wanted their kids to get highly educated because they wanted to get them out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, is the only reason they want them higher educated to get them out of poverty? And they said, well, they, they didn't remember. They just they just kept hearing, I want you to get out of poverty. I said, well, then just become an electrician. Yeah, right. <laughs> become, become a plumber or a welder or something. You can you'll be out of poverty before you know it. Yeah. Uh, in this department anyway. And that and th- that's just not going away because again, you know, the supply side is parents and guidance counselors and teachers and and you know prep high schools whatever that is and colleges they're they're just really corralling everybody their way and the parents are actually getting kind of hoodwinked as if well i I guess i have to send them to college because i'm supposed to do that but yet 50 percent of the jobs in the united states are working with your hands to Uh this day Uh uh-huh and uh, that's not going to change it. You know, I said this the other day, by the time you put your feet on the floor, when you get out of bed in the morning, to the time you go to your office or your church or your school, wherever you're going, you're walking across thousands of blue collar jobs that are still not only viable today, but they're making more money than they ever have. So, you know, it's alive and well on that side of the equation. That's for sure. I love that. I love that little analogy there. You know, you put your feet <laughs> on the floor. In fact, even when you're lying in the bed, right? Yeah. You, you are in a blue collar industry's hands every step of the way. And I often say this about design. You know, everything nature didn't design, we did. And it, we didn't do necessarily as good a job as we could have or should have or with the right amount of knowledge. And, you know, design runs from rudimentary, just make it work, to so elegant that you don't notice it works, you know? Yeah. It just is. And there's a rigor in that of trying to make design be that that beautiful or or beautiful, even if it's rudimentary, beautiful, like somewhere, a company like Olsen Kundig up in Seattle, they do lots of levers and handles and, you know, wheels, and they have a gizmologist as part of their team. And they do clever things, but very rudimentary looking stuff, but works so elegantly. And you look at that and you go, there's a beauty in it. And there's a beauty in actually feeling that the thing is happening with you as well that I think is you're, you're part of the system and you, as you say everything that you touch or that you walk out on is another blue collar worker's been there making that thing happen and 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 again I, I think the appreciation part of that is is really the the tricky part right now because if I'm if I'm I'll, t- I'll just give you one experience so I had somebody build an outdoor kitchen in the back of my house mm-hmm. out of stone mm-hmm. it's it's beautiful there's a fence wrought iron fence there's a stone fence it's beautiful i have these bevelo gas lanterns that stay lit it's just gorgeous and the guy that did it showed up eight months after i hired him because he had, he was that busy right <laughs> he comes in in his brand new pickup truck and he's got his jeans on his work boots and he's got his ozzy osborne t-shirt on He's got his cup of coffee and he's listening to 
rock and roll on the stereo. And him and his his two guys are building this thing, and they're having a blast doing it. They, you know, they they enjoy the creation of what they're doing. And at the end of the day, they get this thing that I call the stand back moment, where they get oh, yeah. to stand back and lean on their shovel and look at that and go, okay, I did that. I built that. That will stand the test of time. And I just don't think most people appreciate how valuable that is versus sitting in a cubicle somewhere on the 15th floor and not knowing what you're part of and do I matter here and what am I doing? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that that's, that environment is yes and this one's no. I'm not saying that. It's just most people don't appreciate what you just said, which is how the hand touches everything that we do to move around in this world and to live comfortably and all that. You know, we got to stand back for a minute and say, you know what? We need to appreciate that because somebody did all that stuff. I have this little self saying, as well as I say to other people, they'll be they'll be talking about some you know something amazing. So, say it's a piece of architecture or a building or whatever. And the piece that amazes me is the human endeavor it took to make it. That's the piece that truly amazes me. The design might be beautiful, it might be fantastic, whatever it is. But you just you know. Go to something like the Suez Canal. Somebody dug that thing, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> and more than what one about, somebody. <laughs> what, what about the church in Spain that's been being built for 120 oh, years? I was there and last year. I was there probably four or five years ago, and it's still being built 110 years later. I mean, mm-hmm. grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers and I mean, yeah, the, you walk inside and you're looking up and you're saying, okay, I know a little bit about construction. How is that concrete stairway standing oh. there with no support from anything? Uh-huh. And it's just <laughs> math and the thinking and the trials and tribulations and the human aspect of that. It's, it's mind-boggling. But yet some people walk in there and take a few pictures and go, that's pretty. Then they just walk out and not even realize what just happened there, you know? You know, one of the things I loved most in there was there were so many things to love, but one of the things that really struck me that was really incredible was that model downstairs where Gaudi had, well, somebody had recreated it, I think, but had done the string lines, the the steel, the the chain lines, and then hung weights off them in the model to get all the perfect arches to make the thing work. And he he designed essentially the building upside down. Yeah, and, yeah, and all the drawings. Do you remember all the drawings yeah. that he had? I yeah. mean, just absolutely bizarre. And and to your point, he he masterminded the thing to be sure. And I we saw several other Gaudi buildings while we were uh-huh. there. The one that looks the one that looks like a melted cupcake that just oh, drips yeah. off. So, but yeah, I mean, to think of he was he was a little crazy when you think about this with some of this stuff in a good way. Yeah, but yet somebody had to. Somebody had to find a way, way back then, to erect enough scaffolding to build a mold to pour that concrete in, which weighed hundreds of tons, yeah. and, yet, and yet elevate it till it was dry. It's, it's mind-boggling. I, mean, I, how they- I also go back to the point that you made about you know, people going and building something in their backyard. He modeled, he modeled what he was doing with his hands. And I have this yeah. other thing with that. There's this, this thing that I go, after a day of working, even if it's just gardening in my backyard or something, I actually feel like I've done some honest work. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Maybe it was from growing up, you know, growing up, my dad was always building rock walls and landscaping. He's an artist, but he was building all these things. And, you know, I'd spend the weekends pouring concrete steps and building rock walls and shifting stuff around. And as much as I hated it many times, it made me very aware of construction and it made me very capable and it created my ability to use analytical thinking because at some point, I know the number of times we see pictures that people draw that can't be built. And because there is no analytical thinking of the physics right. of it or what's going to happen. Yet when you go sure. with your hands, you either run out of knowledge or you run out of a, of it being possible. Yeah, and, and it, it's it's interesting because my daughter, you know, I, I didn't push her to go to college or anything, but she just fell in love with architecture. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife's an interior designer, huh. and uh, so she was always drawing things, you know, rooms, and she has her little thing with the little couches and the little chairs that you put on there, and then you draw the around it so yep. you can get it all scaled and everything. And Nicole always watched her doing that, and then she went on to be, she got her master's degree from Michigan in architecture. Nice. And, and you're right. It's funny because she would come home and say, well, she'd make these beautiful presentations. I mean, just unbelievable with CAD and, yep. you know, all these all these new sketch up and all these new things that they're doing. And she'd say, yeah, this one can't be built, Dad. This one can be built. Like she would tell you, like, this is a fantasy. This is a real thing. And <laughs> so exactly. it's, it's fun to watch her because she enjoyed that and she wanted to do it. She didn't have to. She could have come into my business or she could have started a bakery or whatever she wanted to do. But yeah, this is what she wanted to do. And, and it's, it's funny you say that about what can and can't be built, but that's yeah, fun to watch. It is, it is fun to watch. You know, we, we often have that sort of comment that goes, okay, and so where's the sky hook go? Something's got to hold that up. Right. <laughs> and especially architects have a fascination with the with cantilevering. And it, it, it's a common thing. And it's part of it is, is how do you make something look elegant that's, that should be impossible? Right. And usually with a lot of steel or a lot of structure somewhere, balancing it out. But then there's a limit to what, you know, engineering and mathematics can work out on that stuff. That's great. So your early years, let's jump back. <laughs> Tell me, like, how did you end up ditch digging? So my high school had a property that connected to an industrial park, and there was a fence there. And every every day after school, we'd cut through this well-worn hole in this fence, and we'd go down the street to the carryout, drugstore, whatever, yeah. and just hang out. And I would constantly see all this activity in this industrial park there was businesses and hustle and bustle and you know things that young guys liked you know dump trucks and backhoes and equipment and people running around and so finally I said you know I knew somebody that that had worked there and I said you know I need money like anybody else I wanted to be able to take my girlfriend out for pizza or you know go bowling with my buddies or whatever so I I went in and said "What what are we doing and they said well we're digging ditches and I said okay I think I'm qualified to do that so at 15, I started doing that in the summertime. Uh-huh. And then in the wintertime, I would work in the office after school because obviously I was still going to high school. So I, I got kind of a really good sense of what the front and the back of the house was doing and how it operated. And three years into that, I was 18 and 
I was, it was like time to go to school or not go to school. You know, should I try going to school? Would I like going to school? And I, I just kind of knew it wasn't for me. So the, the boss at the time said, you know, we're going to start opening branch offices because we're going too far away from our, we're getting a lot of demand from far away. And so they, they said, do you want to be involved in that? So I actually at, at 18 and a half, I traveled around the Midwest and opened up companies from scratch. Yeah. I mean, we literally had to design the walls and have them build it, put the plumbing in and the phone lines and all that stuff. And then we had to staff the building up with people and then get it going and then go move on to the next one. So I did that four or five times and got tired of living out of a suitcase, you know. Yeah. And so then I moved to Toledo in 1986. We started with six people and now we have nearly 200. So it's it's been a wow. hell of a ride. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what a fascinating opportunity as well that, you know, so yeah, you went and dug some ditches to make some cash, but then out of that, they saw that you had more to offer and gave you the opportunity to offer it up, like gave you the, the education basically to take it further. But, you know, the, the, the cool thing was, and this is, this is a lot about, this is one of the reasons that I was surprised that so many business owners are involved in the book, because there is a, there's, there's a thing about culture where you can earn at your own pace based on how hard or how much work you, you want to get done. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of risk-reward stuff, okay? You want this? Okay, go find a way to pay for it, go buy it, and then move on to the next thing. And so I was, like, firmly in control of my input, you know, the level of output I had, the quality of the output, my day, my schedule, my time. And, of you know, obviously because of all that, I was in charge or in, in full control of my financial gains. So to me, it was kind of a no-brainer to continue working in an area where, you know, you determined how much money you made. And so that way, all those little life visions that you have for yourself, you can start hitting them one at a time Mm -hmm. or even multiple ones concurrently. And I think that's the lost art in, in, in the, in the workforce today. There there's, there's a missing piece there where, where people, they kind of wait for life to happen to them instead of them happening to life. You know what mm, I mean? Mm, and, very much. And, and I think I think that's, you know, we're all waiting for this if then, okay? You know, if I go to high school and if I get good grades and if I get a scholarship and if I go to college and if I get a degree and if that degree comes out and, you know, I get a good job and then if that job pays me well, well, then I can start living my life. I think that's completely backwards. I think we all need to start with the then first Mm-hmm. What does that look like in all forms? And then figure out one of the many ways to get there, college only ever being one of those paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing there is there's such a a set path that, and, and you would have seen this plenty of times, I'm sure. There's a set path where, you know, you go, you're born, you go to school, and that's government regulated thing. You know, you get this first part of education and then there's the point where you've got, you've got that first decision on where, where to next, which is either to the workforce or to an apprenticeship or to mm-hmm. something or to higher studies or more studies. And 
there's so many people who are so unsure about what they want to do because they're unsure about what they want to have or to get right. to, you know, this right. the, the then. And maybe that's a failing in parenting, maybe, that they, I mean, all kids seem to want to do better than their parents. That's sort of their first competitive edge is it's like, how can I do better than? Or not necessarily to be better than, just to... You know, they 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 go. These are the things that I want to be able to do that they've seen in their parents' lives, and they want more of that, maybe. But then the path to it is it's just I can't. I'm back in my day. I certainly can't remember it being clearly presented. And today, I think it's even more confusing. And because everything today is not everything. It's a big broad statement. So many things are so niche there's fewer generalists and because there's fewer generalists there's that you know you you used to go to get somebody my example would be a builder used to get a guy he'd come along he was a carpenter and he would be capable of laying the concrete building the walls probably doing brickwork as well he probably worked with the plumber he would set up the roof. He wouldn't go and buy trusses necessarily, build them on site. They'd be stick framed. Today, right. there's carpenters who don't know that the things don't arrive on the back of a truck and you put them together. You know, that <laughs> difference, it's like, and so therefore they don't necessarily also get the appreciation of what the person before them had to do to make their piece easier. You know, the supply chain piece. So they're not looking at leaving their job perfect for the next person you know you get a roofer and somebody comes in and puts the sheeting on or the battens on or something and then another trade comes and water seals it you know or lays lays insulation or something another trade comes and actually screws the tin on or whatever it is or tiles it you know and yes they're all specialist trades there's very few people who have touched a a whole bunch of them you know yeah you know when when you talk about you know, to go back to what you said a minute ago, when you say that that kids desire to be better than their parents, I, I I think what I think that means to me is kids see what their parents do, they see what they like and what they don't like, but ultimately, I'm not sure that they want to be better than their parents. They just want to be what they want. Okay? Yes, they, they, true. They, Good point. They want to be who what they, what they want, where they want, how they want it, and that's the part about the. That's the part of the book that I think is so important is we can't brush that off as just you assume that they kind of have that down, okay? Yeah. They, you, you need to draw that out, and I mean physically draw that out. What, what, do you, what do you want your house to look like? What do you want your transportation to look like? What do you want your vacations to experience like? What do you want your pets to look like? You know, you saw in the book, dog or cat, what color, what would you name it? You know, what's your give back moment? What's your charity moment? What's your sports moment? What's your hobbies? Write all that stuff down because once you have a firm idea of what your life looks like or what it could look like, what I call comfort, peace, and freedom, once you have a good idea of what that nirvana is, man, there's a lot of ways to get there. And, and, And to your point, there's a career in, you can go to a tech or, tech or trade school or apprenticeship. You can just go right into the workforce. You can go into the military. You can go into college. There's so many ways to get there that are that have always been there, and they're mm-hmm. still there. Mm-hmm. That uh, I I think that's the biggest thing for kids, is 
we need to really allow them more room and more space to explore that part of it because then they will be way more self you know self-reliant more independent than reliant or dependent or waiting for life to happen to them which is a reactive stage i'd rather have my kids be proactive in what they want rather than reacting to stimulus which is environment and governments and economies and all that other kind of stuff so yeah i think that's really important you know i gotta tell you when i was in spanish class in high school they wanted me to know what a noun and a conjugated verb was and all this other kind of stuff all i wanted to know is how do i say where's the bathroom i need a cab uh cab ride where's the i need to get a beer or i mean i just want to speak it i just want to speak it okay yep, yep. Could, could we spend a little less time on all the conjugated verbs and, t- and take that time and maybe put it more into what you want your life to look like? Because I think that's really important. Yeah. And that's a life lesson you just don't get. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I know I soapboxed you a little bit there. but No, I totally like that. I, totally I, I, t- I totally believe that's what we need to spend more time on here. I think there's so much of this, again, it, it's very practical. It's very real world. It's very being able to step out and operate. And when you can do that, you can take responsibility and you can take control of your own future. And that go back to what we said before, where you said to me, you know, like, I don't know that they want to be better. No, I don't. I think you're right. What they want is the choice to be able to choose what they want out of that picture and then without I suppose they have they have to take the responsibility for that journey they have to take the responsibility for funding it for allocating the time to it to dreaming up what's next that's their part of the responsibility and as parents and you know teachers and stuff we can guide them to the best ways possible that we know that those things are changing all the time as well you know, it's this is such a simple thing like you're talking about. So I, I, I do this with my people here all the time. When we talk about putting a goal, you know, a, a goal is a word that is so overused that most people don't even know what it means anymore. Are you talking about a soccer goal, a, a kicking a, f- a football goal? Are you talking about hockey? You're talking about something I'm supposed to chase? What, what are we talking about? Draw that. It's just too vague of a term. So... When you when you put something in front of somebody like this, they say, well, you know what? I'd like to go to Italy. Okay, good. When do you want to go? Well, I don't know. i got to get the money first. Well, how much is it going to cost you? Well, I guess I have to figure that out. Okay, well, are you going to do hotels? Are you going to, do first, are you going to fly first class? How are you going to, well, you know, I haven't really figured that out yet. Well, then it's not a goal yet. It's just a hope or a dream or a maybe, okay? Mm-hmm. Or you can say this. Italy's going to cost you $4,000. Okay, good. So let's see. You can save $80 a week and go in a year. Mm-hmm. You can save, let's see, two years, $4,000. That's $2,000 a year. $40 a week, you can go in two years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, right? I mean, think about it, okay? Let's see, $1,000, $20 a week, and you can go in four years. I mean, it's just it's that simple piece that we keep missing with them. And when you when you when you put it out there, they look back at you like you just invented penicillin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, no, I mean it's 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 simple, it's simple expectation planning is what it is, 
And you know, yeah. you're good at planning vacations, so why can't you plan all of your life like you plan a vacation, right? So to be able to take somebody and break those things down that they have, and they're already, like I said, planning a vacation, everyone already experiences and knows how to do that. So use that same type of forward thinking and apply it to all the things you want in your life, and you're going to live this really cool, expectation-laden, anticipation-laden, awesome life. Because it's not a question of if these things are going to happen. It's only a question of when. Yeah. And, and that right there is the difference between, I think, a really solid, independent, mentally healthy person and someone who just kind of gets ping-ponged around by the paddles. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I really love that. There's a couple of things that you just said. One was write it down, draw a picture of it as well. And I don't think, obviously, write it down. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 20 years, there isn't, a, there isn't somebody who will tell you that is you know, coaching or mentoring or whatever to don't write it down, just keep it in your head. They'll all tell you, write it down. But yeah. then the other thing you said was draw it. And I really enjoyed that because I'd rather draw it than write it down often and, you know, create a vision board with it, you know. And if it's your own drawing, it's probably... Yeah, you might go, I can't draw. Well, trace over something. Make the make the physical action. Do that physical action because it's valuable. You know, I, I when I talk about it in the book, I, I purposely say to use crayons. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do that is because the last time an adult held a crayon in their hand, they were probably five years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it was during one of their most creative times in their lifetime. There's no lines, there's no rules, there's no stress, there's no job, there's no you know, bills to pay, there's no mortgage, there's no, there's, there's no outside noise. You're there with a blank piece of paper, and I want you to draw a horse, okay, yeah. Yeah. or a rocket, or a rainbow, or a sunset. A motorbike, a car, or, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So take those same crayons and get back into that mode of when you were a kid and draw what you want your life to look like. I mean, make it as pretty as you possibly can. And if you have to trace, trace, if you have to maybe punt a little bit and get some magazine pictures of something that exactly fits what you're doing add them in but the fact that you're taking it from your brain and putting it down on paper is something that 99 out of 100 people aren't willing to do which i find shocking Mm. (laughs) and and the one the one percent of the people that are willing to do that not only do they end up getting all those things but they end up earning like nine times more money than everybody else in the same category it's 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 insane and it, it's it's free. I mean, there's no there's it's no just formal an, training. You just it's do an it. action. It's just it's an action, right? An action yeah, and so with purpose. I I, I I was interviewing. You've heard of Tony Robbins, I'm uh-huh. sure. Yeah. I, I was interviewing his son, Jarek Robbins. Amazing, amazing guy. Uh-huh. And one of the things one of the things that he told me because I've always been looking, Adrian. I've been looking for science to back up what I was talking about. Okay. And uh, so he gave it to me. He, uh, after all, I've, I've done 165 podcasts, and I finally got this answer. <laughs> he says, <laughs> "He says when you think about something and you see it very clearly, and you put it down, there's these neurotransmitters in your brain that are sending these light signals back and forth mm-hmm. as fast as you can think, mm-hmm. and they're picturing these things in your mind. The more that you do, more that you see it, write it down. It's in front of you. You repetitively look at it." 
the closer those neurotransmitters get to the point where the light travels so fast or the signal goes so fast that it's almost one thought and you actually think you own it already. Like your brain actually thinks it already possesses this thing. Uh-huh. So what it does is your your subconscious and your involuntary movements and actions and words and deeds and whatever move you towards that thing. Mm-hmm. So you're actually attracting yourself to the thing that you want without even knowing it, just by keeping it in front of you. Yeah. If you if our brains are that powerful, why the hell are we not using them like that every single day, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's what you're telling people is is make it work that way. The other thing I loved, like I love that neurotransmitter thing. A a guy that I know reasonably well is Alan Pease, who's the body language expert for the world. And Alan talks about when you write it down, the neural pathways it uses or draw the neural pathways it uses versus if you type it. If you type it out, you're not going to get anywhere near the same neural pathways. And wow. that's that's that highway that you were just saying that Jarek was saying about. It's that highway. It doesn't compute through typing it as it doesn't lock it in as much or create it as strongly as if you do the physical actions with your hands to create the thing. And you think back yeah. to blue collar, that's part of blue collar as well. You know, what's funny about that is, I thought there was something wrong with me because when I wrote the book, I literally wrote it on legal pads with a pen. And I had 12 legal pads full of words. <laughs> this and, was um, a letter, remember? This was one letter. Yeah, it's, it was a letter, right? <laughs> so I remember being on a plane and I'm writing feverishly and this guy sits next to me and he's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I think I'm writing a book. And he goes, I know, but you're writing it? And I said, yeah. He goes, you know, we have these things. Well, you know what? I tried it. I went home and tried to to write by typing. Uh I couldn't do it. I I had no free flow of information. I couldn't like, I couldn't get more than like 10 minutes worth of work done. Uh It was really, really odd, especially since I had to type three words and erase two of them because I made mistakes because I'm not a good typer. But Uh I literally couldn't get into a free flow state of writing, trying to do it on a keyboard. It was the weirdest thing. And you just answered why. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I know. And, you know, so many things like the, the natively learnt things that become natural to us, we learnt to read and write, you know, we learnt to do it that way. And also, if there is no other device of any kind, we would draw this in, in, in the sand, you know, we would. Yeah. How many times have you been on a site and somebody said, how are we going to do this? And you grab a stick and you to map it out on the ground and say that's where man that's that's how it's going to go and this is absolutely we're going to take Um, 100 that's true it's just so practical i have a question around so taking the concept of that we have blue collar workers and, and blue collar workers are in demand and what they do is physical it's, it could be a florist or it could be a, a ditch digger, you know, but it's a physical thing. It's a creation or a hairdresser or a chef or whatever. It's physical creation. And we on the, I can say the verge, I think better, better than that. The guys who built the toys have given us some, given us them to put in our sandpit now, which is AI. 
So artificial right. intelligence. And it will revolutionize just about everything. <laughs> and we look at somebody like, you know, Jeff Bezos and what he's done with Amazon and with Amazon, you know, it's an automated mechanical robotic system and works hugely efficiently. When you look at that and you take it against blue collar, what are your thoughts? Like where's blue collar sit in this picture versus professional? You know, I, I was I was kind of professional. I, I guess I would say I, I was kind of politely or I should say happily surprised <laughs> that everyone thinks that it was going to replace all the manpower, but yet it seems to be replacing all the brain power. So mm-hmm. it, it seems to me that the professional side has a heck of a lot more to worry about than me planting a tree, okay? Uh-huh. Because I look at the things that we do and I say to myself, I don't know that that could ever be replaced by a machine. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, imagine someone trying to color your hair with a robot or, or I mean, imagine there's just some <laughs> things you just can't do. I mean, imagine a chef making you dinner. That's I, There's just things that I don't think can happen. I, I just, I just don't. So I, it, it's interesting because it's almost the opposite of what everyone has been thinking. Yeah. You know, t- to a point you're right. You know, j- if you have a, a repetitive assembly line thing, I can see sure. where that is something but if you're moving left and right and forward and running back and forth to the truck for parts and then something doesn't fit right, so now you need to make an adjustment or you need to dig something differently or a lot of that stuff is right on, on, you know, on demand. And yeah, I don't see us going AI anytime soon. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I'm very much of the same mind. You know, I go, yes, there'll be lots of things that maybe robots will take care of and that will be good. And I think that the amount of information or or the specificity of information that we might be able to use, you know, so say you're a plumber and you can take your phone, say, because I'm thinking old technology versus new here, but you can scan the situation you've got. And maybe at that point there, you know, AI can go, here's here's your top three solutions. Right. Here's your things to look at. And you go, okay, but somebody still has to actually pull it apart and put it back together and drill the right. hole and you know, somebody yeah. has to carry that out. And thinking of, you know, those guys building the rock work at your house and going, okay, so there's a big pile of rocks and they go, okay, so what do you have to do? Do you have to lay them all out separately on the backyard and then scan them all individually? And it says, now that rock over there goes with that rock there that goes with that <laughs> rock there. No, no, turn it over and around like this. There's so right. many intrinsic things, isn't there, that you go, yeah, on a second. And yet I look at, you know, Icon 3D in, in Texas, and they're probably leading the race in 3D consp- printing of buildings. And I go, this is incredible. Like it's, it's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. It, it, can do incredible things once it's told what to do. And then there's still all the things that need to go in with that. You know, it doesn't run the plumbing at the same time and it doesn't run the electricity at the same time. It makes provisions, but all those other things are still touching it. And I go, it's a new tool for construction that requires maybe less humans to do it and makes things 
previously if we said oh we want a big curvy wavy wall you know we would go that's going to cost a lot of money now that curvy wavy wall costs a little bit more material but it costs the same to produce you know there's a little bit more material because it's got more lineal meterage things like that i think are really interesting and this melding of it but you can't just take one of those gantries and put it just anywhere to build something as well yeah you know it, it is interesting and, and I, I hope I hope like everything, we find a really cool balance between all of it. You know, I, I remember, I mean, do you remember like 1999 flipping to 2000? Everyone thought the world was going to end. And then the computers were all going to die and blow up. And then, you know, with cloning, everyone thought, okay, there's going to be all these Ken Ruskers running around now, you know, and, you know, that didn't really. So Doesn't work I hope yet. that. I hope that this is kind of like that, where there's like a really solid balance of, of positive and supportive. And, you know, like, for example, medical. It, it, if that thing can predict, you know, horrible diseases and mm-hmm. maybe put people's nervous systems back together, I mean, all mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. do that. But, yeah, I don't think we have to. I mean, you know, when you hear these stories about from the Defense Department saying, you know, AI wanted to attack itself i mean that's a little scary because it's you know from a military perspective but yeah I, I think i think from our position i think like you said take the benefits of it take the intelligence of it take the efficiencies of it but you still got you still got to dig that hole and plant that tree and water it and fertilize it and do all the other stuff so. and, and and talk to it and and, yeah. and have expectation of it. You know, nature works yeah. that way as well. I remember yeah. years ago, King Charles now, but Prince Charles was pulled over the coals in, in England because he talked to his plants. And yeah. yet they they say, they say, hey, if you do, it makes plants better as well. There's so many things like that. I I think I think the thing about plants is I think any positive energy you can give to a plant is good, no matter what it is, whether you water it or you, you know, you hug it or you talk to it or whatever. I think anything that's positive because, you know, you're putting this, especially when you're putting a, tr- a plant in a stressful situation. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound crazy here, but you want to give it its best possible chance to live because you've gone through all that work to make it happen. So <laughs> if you want to say, there you go, baby, there you go. Hang in there. <laughs> I'm sure I- that's okay. <laughs> I totally agree as well. And I think, you know, by the, the law of reciprocity, by giving the gratitude and giving the the thing out, you get it back as well. So when you go and hug your tree, you're actually getting hugged by the tree at the same time. You, you're you giving and you're receiving. I, I talk a lot about, in another form, in the book, I talk a lot about that when it comes to charity, when it talks, when, when it talks about giving back, because... You know, we do a lot of different things for charity here. We have for 30 years, and it's not just our money. You know, you can you can write a check and send it off to some foreign country. You don't know what they're doing with it, whatever. We give of our time, our talent, and our treasure, which is which means we get involved in doing it in addition to the money and, and whatnot. And the funny thing about giving back is you're not really ever supposed to do it so that you expect something to come back your way, okay? Mm-hmm. You're not giving strictly to receive but i will tell you this it just seems to be that the more you give the more the, whatever that karma is and you talk about talking to the tree and the tree talking back it just seems to be that you're blessed with more 
because mm-hmm. someone out there is saying, if I give him more or sh- if I give her more, they're going to give more away and they're going to help more people. Mm-hmm. So I just think it seems to work that way. And again, I don't want anyone going out there and saying, well, I'm going to give so I get. Nope, that's not what it's all about. If it's in your heart, it seems to come back to you in spades. That's for sure. I, I think that's a really good point as well. Yeah, sure. Go and give more away if that's if they if you think that's take the action. If you even if you think it's because you're going to get something back, take the action. And then on the other side of it, by giving from your heart, then all of a sudden what happens is you've got a connection. It's uh, my my wife made this comment on the on the weekend. So I was at a business seminar all weekend, like I said. And we were talking and, and she said, you know, something came to me or struck me with this. And I'm like, yeah, what's that? And she said, well, you know, I don't believe in giving my kids, you know, our kids. We're not going to fund them into their home. We're not going to buy them a car. We, we will, we'll help them. But that, that, we're, we're giving them the education and we're putting them around an environment that says, hey, these are your two feet. This is your brain take it where you want to go you know the the dr seuss book the the places i will go and i love that book Uh, Um, and then we look at life that way and yes we want to advantage them and give them a a hand up but not a hand out definitely not a hand out and so at what point do, do you have enough money or whatever and you know, her thing was, is why, why do I keep growing my business? What's, why is that, what's that about? Why, why push so hard to make these things happen? And she goes, I, I, I absolutely got it. It was so that I can just give more away to, to the places I want to be able to give it away. And it's not just about the money. It's like you just said, like, she's very philanthropic. She's very much like she's been on a board of a foundation that was the foundation for our town. Since the day of its inception, she worked with them. And she's currently the chair of the grants committee for it. You know, she's given a lot of time into the community for that, this charity thing. And the group that we belong to just raised $331,000 on Sunday night Wow! from the community, which will go mainly to Africa. There's some two places, two charities in Africa that, well, they're not charities, actually. They are, I suppose, businesses that look after people that that money will go and fund. And that's on top of, you know, $280,000 last year and whatever, whatever. This is a yearly right. thing. But being a part of a community that sees that, and the guy who who runs it, he he could stop tomorrow. He could stop any time he wants. The money is not what he works for. It's to be able to give it and to empower other people to give it. It's a, it's a, it's a you. He, he's done what he's done. He go, does what he does, and he now goes, how can I get everybody else to that next point? How do I, I get think, him there? You know, I, I heard... A long time ago, when when my daughter first got sick, one of my friend's friends stepped up and said, you know, my daughter was up way up in northern Michigan, and she was at a, at a, a camp, summer camp. And we finally figured out what we were going to do to make her better and whatever. And this gentleman stepped up and said, here's my plane. You go get that little girl, and you take her anywhere you need to take her and you get her better. And 
I took that plane all over Philadelphia, New York, Cleveland, everywhere to, to get her better. And I saw him months later and I said, you know, let me ask you, why, why did you do that? And he said, well, it's real simple. To whom much is given, much is expected. And I never forgot that. And I had been a charity person before that, but I kind of supercharged my charity after that. And he's right. To whom much is given, much is expected. And if I, you know, I like to back, I, I, I should say, I like to back people that are fighting for themselves. So you talked earlier about giving money away to your children. Mm-hmm. If you're creating a path for them to excel and you're funding their acceleration that they're responsible for, that's okay. Right. And, it, and it's just like the charities that we give to. We we give to charities that where people fight for themselves and we support them in their fight. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's that's really beneficial because you're literally not feeding a man for a day. You're teaching him how to fish. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really important. So I'll fund those kind of things. Yeah, I'll fund those things all day long because. You know, there's there's two of us in the same fight, and we're trying to get to the same place. So, yeah, I, I agree totally with. I love where that. Your, where your wife said, I, I hope that she continues that process because oh, she will. <laughs> she won't <laughs> believe me. Yeah, she's a very determined and driven woman, which is great. Really good. Okay, I've got a couple of questions, which are going to be about you and your home. And okay. I'm going to ask a couple of questions here. I'm going to first. I'm going to ask another one first. And I often ask this of designers and architects, but I'm going to ask you this one: If you had one last project, and I don't even know what kind of project that's going to be, but you're going to work this out. One last project, and that's it. You have to hang your hat up. You can't do any more. This is it. One last thing. What would you choose to do? Well, I, I guess this is a, a simple one. It's, it's not a real romantic one. but So my company has grown so much that we keep running out of space. And this is I've built four buildings now. And each one I think, okay, you're done now. You're good. This is as good as it needs to be. And yet it happened to me again. So I don't I – don't, I don't necessarily, this isn't necessarily like uh, like me building something worthwhile like a hospital or uh-huh. <laughs> a charity or something like that. But I just want to get it right once, okay? So I'm going to build this thing big enough where I get it right and I, I have everything inside and all my equipment's in there and I get it right for the first time in 30 years. So, yeah. In fact, my son-in-law and my daughter are both drawing that building as we speak. They're, they're was- designing it. That was going to be my next question. Was are they doing it? Yeah, yeah. That, so the, the the new headquarters, they they are going to do it. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. Actually, I've got another question just before I go to my last question about your house. You said that you've employed over two thousand people, two thousand hires, and out of that, you must have some incredible people skills and intuition around people. And is there any kind of like, if you could give me three markers or three things that you go, have they got this, this, or this when you go to employ? Is there something, I always think of when Napoleon Hill got to do the book Think and Grow Rich and 
you know, has worked with that. And I think it was Dale Carnegie had the stopwatch under his desk to see how quickly he would say that he would do it, you know, and and how his answers came. Is there is there things that you can enlighten us with there when hiring? Well, first off, I think the greeting is everything. If they look you in the eye and they smile and they give you a firm handshake, I mean, you're so right there. You've separated yourself from the herd big time. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's there's no doubt, and and that's a pretty standard one. But but for me, when I think when somebody asks me questions versus me asking them questions, I I think I think being inquisitive is is awesome because you know they're interviewing me now, mm-hmm. okay. And, and I love that. And I give them the opportunity to that. But I, I think more than anything is when someone has a plan for their life. Like if someone's already drawn a vision board, they're hired. Okay? Yeah, right. If, if somebody even talks about a vision board, do you support vision boards here? They're hired. You know, if, yeah. they, if they have a plan for their future, and even if they can't articulate it perfectly, but you can tell they're really thinking a lot about it. If they're thinking about their future and they, they, you know, you can come to the conclusion that you might have a entrepreneur in, sitting in uh-huh. front of you, uh-huh. you know, one who works for you, but kind of like works for themselves first, they're yeah. hired. I mean, so that, I guess that's, that's my answer there. Oh, I love that. I love that piece about the entrepreneur. You know, so many people think that they have to just do a job or that they have to start their own business. And yet there's so much opportunity in other people's businesses. Oh, yeah. If you come with the right mindset, it will Absolutely. take you. Yeah, it will take you to the highest heights. I always think of Johnny, Jonathan Eve and Steve Jobs, you know, and, and Steve was yeah, like that whole thing of he became the designer of some of the, the products that we all touch and know, obviously, very well. Because Steve gave, he, he did the entrepreneurship with Steve, you know, he, he did that thing. And I think it's a great story. And that business mindset, that business, not owner, business mindset that they carry with them. Yeah. I, I, it, in my business, and certainly I know lots of my friends' businesses, we're all looking for them. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you, if, if, if you get someone in front of you that, that even if they don't say it out loud, if they're thinking it, if they're thinking, you know what, I think I can get what I want for my life with and through this company that he's currently running. Mm-hmm. You got something there. Mm-hmm. I, I've probably said, I probably said this to the group a hundred times in the last 30 years. I can't get what I want for myself, nor can my company get what it wants or needs until all of you get what you want first. And Adrian, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's absolutely true. If you think about any organization, there's an input, there's several things that happen, and there's an output. And we are always on the output side. I mean, yeah. always. Yeah. So it, it's, it only stands to reason that you better have a bunch of people winning in front of you before you win. Absolutely. It, and everybody wins that way, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think if you got someone in front of, in front of you that's like, Okay, I'm going to work for me first and you second, Ken, if that's okay. I'm all in. Go for it. Yeah. Let's, let's make this happen. Something that came to me when you were saying it was it means that you know that you've got a like mind or a person with enough of a like mind that you can work with them. 
that, that yeah, it's yeah. not just a them and us. It's like you can go, hey, I know where you're trying to get to. This is part of your path. And and also, you know, you, you really have to, for, for business owners out there, you, you can't necessarily measure yourself in all the things that you fix or say or do or change or improve or redo or whatever. I look at business owners as, the way to be successful is to almost make yourself irrelevant to the day-to-day. And that that's really harsh for a lot of people. They're like, oh, no, no, I mean, I control everything. I got my fingers and everything. I got to fix and repair and do all this stuff. Not necessarily, because if you truly want to grow, there's only one of you, okay? Mm-hmm. Go surround yourself with 10 entrepreneurs and then come back and tell me in a year what your business looks like. It's going to be five times bigger than you could ever build it yourself. So yeah. just just let go of that because it'll come back to you and in, in space. In yeah, yeah, buckets. <laughs> we won't go to buckets because otherwise we'll be in the five gallon bucket. That's right. I'm <laughs> gonna ask you this other question because I know you've got a day to do as well. Is in your own home, there's a space that is your favorite space. What is it? So I have a pub on my first floor. Yeah. Okay. Now, mind you, we, we, we there, there's a fireplace that separates the kitchen from the pub. Uh-huh. And I'm not a believer in a separate dining room. So we put the dining room in the kitchen. So it's one big room. Uh-huh. There's, there's the kitchen island. There's the sink and all the appliances. You can sit around the island, but then there's a dining room table right there. And then there's a two-sided fireplace and there's the pub. Okay. So when you're in the pub, you can talk with your friends while you're drinking a beer or whatever. And maybe you're in there and the gals are in the kitchen doing something and Uh someone's sitting at the table and you can all see each other. I love it. So it's it's not like you go from one room to the next, to the next, and you're compartmentalized off. You're in one space. And what's really cool is everyone can interact no matter what they're doing, whether they're cooking or mixing a drink or sitting at the table or sitting by the fire, they can all be part of one conversation. And there's a spot there where I can see everything. And that's my favorite spot. When you're in that spot, how does it make you feel? I would, I would say it, it makes me feel, this is a weird word, but it makes me feel real organic, like I'm part of the earth because there's stone and there's wood oh. and there's glass and there's fire and there's water and there's, you know. There's all, all the elements. Yeah. yeah. So I just feel like I'm really part of the whole world when I'm sitting in that spot. And that's probably, I got to tell you. I've been on a lot of podcasts. That might be one of the, that might be the best question I've ever been asked right there. <laughs> Good. I'm pleased about that. I think this is a really fascinating thing. You know, people build homes and, you know, you said you remodeled it and it, you remodeled it with purpose and fascinating that you've got, you've put all those elements around you. You actually, you know, like have a company that digs holes in the earth. That, that works that works physically in the earth. So all these elements are very real and very tangible. And having a position where you can see see it all from. Right. It's like if if 
if you were looking into a wall or something else, it wouldn't be your favorite spot. Not at all. It's being able to observe it all and see it unfolding in front of you. It's And, and it's organic. I, I think the description organic was really great. And then <laughs> yeah. also because it, it grounded you, it gave you all those earthly elements. It gave you all the things that make the, the, the basis of how the earth operates. I think, well, you know, and, and in the backyard, there's lots of glass. So in the backyard, I've got, you know what a birch tree is? Mm-hmm. It's a white white bark tree mm-hmm. and i have a lot i have a lot of big boulders a lot of pine trees super cool green pine trees and these white birch and there's my great room there and that's a couple stories so the cool thing is i can kind of be one with the whole world by looking around you know through these yeah. windows or into the other rooms or through the fireplace and it's just a really cool spot it's kind of like a perch yeah yeah <laughs> and I'm like, I'm holding court when that happens. And yeah, that's, that's gotta be one of the best questions I've ever been asked. So well done, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. And I think, you know, you've got to get out to Australia and we we better have a chat about who I can introduce you to that maybe you could speak for, because there's, (laughs) there's quite a few blue collar, you know, groups that I know of out here. I'm doing one, a talk in September around architecture and builders so like how how the two work together how to get the most success as a team for a company called the association of professional builders they're in australia new zealand canada the u.s they they train builders and i i'm going to be talking to them very soon again and i'm going to be you know saying hey have a look at this book. I think this guy could be really good for you guys to talk to. And they have a podcast as well, so that could be a good one. And then also EBS, the Entrepreneur Business School, is another one where, as I said before earlier, there's a lot of trades that have very successful businesses in there. And your take on it is very in line with the teaching that they use. It's Love it. Great. Well, that's great. I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate the time and it, it's yeah. been fun. Thanks and a big shout me. out to John for introducing us. Yes, John Skomsky. Yeah, great, what a great, great guy. guy. <laughs> Talked to him this morning, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Cool, man. Take care. Have a wonderful evening. And we will talk again soon. I'll be in touch. I hope so. You got it. Take care. Cheers, buddy. Bye. All right. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? 
and see if they follow you, see if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.